Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 110, Trailblazers. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. This week, we're going to discuss three Bostonian ladies who forged new paths for women. Catherine Nanny Naylor was granted the first divorce in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, allowing her to ditch an abusive husband and make her way as an entrepreneur. Annette Kellerman, a professional swimmer, popularized the one-piece swimming suit, and Amelia Earhart took to the skies after humble beginnings in a Boston settlement house. But before we talk about these three incredible women, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is Boston's South End, The Clash of Ideas in a Historic Neighborhood by local author Russ Lopez. On his website, Russ describes the book as follows. The first comprehensive history of the South End in over a century, this book is a must-read for anyone who has lived or worked in the neighborhood, as well as those interested in history, architecture, and Boston. From its time as marshland flanking a narrow neck of land through its initial development in the 1850s to its multi-million dollar condominiums after 2000, the story of one of the country's most beautiful communities reflects economic ups and downs, the dedication of newcomers and long-term residents opposing threats to their neighborhood, and the special qualities of a place that has a tradition of welcoming everyone. Here you will meet crusading evangelicals battling to save souls, brilliant women challenging social norms, Passionate advocates insisting on their civil rights. Resourceful residents fighting bulldozers and bureaucrats. You'll read about real estate developers, community gardeners, artists, parents, piano builders, landladies, restaurateurs, and the many people who wanted to create a neighborhood that was both beautiful and open to all. The book details the experiences of neighborhood residents and advocates including Louisa May Alcott, Malcolm X, John L. Sullivan, Mary Baker Eddy, and the many South Enders who continue to contribute to the neighborhood in our time. In the show notes this week, we'll have a link to purchase the book, as well as a link to a Boston Neighborhood News Network interview with Russ Lopez. And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring the Boston Athenaeum's Up Close Tour, Two Presidents and a Ghost. As the website describes, Up Close Tours encourage visitors to look closely at materials from the Athenaeum's rich collections and consider them within a particular context. Join Boston Athenaeum docent Maureen Marcucci as she leads a discussion around the portraits and lives of Samuel Eliot, Thomas Perkins, and Reverend Thaddeus Mason Harris, and their roles as leaders who have impacted the history of the Boston Athenaeum. As for the ghostly activity referenced in the tour title, the Athenaeum website tells us more. Thaddeus Mason Harris was born on July 7, 1768, in Malden. His father had run a public writing school in Charlestown until the Revolution, when the British burned much of Charlestown, including the Harris property. The family subsequently moved to Lancaster. After a hand injury thwarted his apprenticeship to a saddle maker, young Thaddeus attended Harvard College, graduating in 1787 before settling down to teach school in Worcester. He returned to Cambridge and Harvard in 1789 to obtain a theology degree and served as librarian of the Harvard College Library from 1791 to 93, 
when he was ordained as a Unitarian minister of the First Parish Church in Dorchester. In 1795, he married Mary Dix of Worcester, with whom he would have nine children. Thaddeus contracted yellow fever during an 1802 epidemic and later traveled to Ohio, at the time a wild frontier state, later publishing an account of the journey. He received a doctorate of theological studies from Harvard in 1813 and saw many of his sermons published in his lifetime. He resigned as minister from First Parish Church in 1836 and died on April 3, 1842, in Dorchester. He's buried in the Old North Burying Place in Upham's Corner. A lifetime member of the Athenaeum, Reverend Harris was known to frequent the library in the afterlife as well. In an incident which has become part of Boston Athenaeum folklore, Nathaniel Hawthorne relates how, in 1842, he spotted the ghost of Reverend Harris reading his own obituary in that morning's paper. Hawthorne reports to have seen the Reverend frequently at the Athenaeum in the ensuing weeks, but hesitated to address him as they had never been properly introduced. While visiting friends in England decades later, Hawthorne related the anecdote to his host, who insisted that he write it down for her. The manuscript was later published in Living Age on February 10, 1900. Of the experience, Hawthorne wrote, But that very evening, a friend said to me, Did you hear that old Dr. Harris is dead? No, I said very quietly, and it cannot be true, for I saw him at the Athenaeum today. You must be mistaken, rejoined my friend. He is certainly dead, and confirmed the fact with such special circumstances that I could no longer doubt it. My friend has often since assured me that I seemed much startled as the intelligence, but, as well as I can recollect, I believe that I was very little disturbed, if at all, but set down the apparition as a mistake of my own, or perhaps the interposition of a familiar idea into the place and amid the circumstances with which I had been accustomed to associate it. The next day, as I ascended the steps of the Athenaeum, I remember thinking within myself, well, I never shall see the old Dr. Harris again. With this thought in my mind, and as I opened the door of the reading room, I glanced towards the spot and chair where Dr. Harris usually sat, and there, to my astonishment, sat the gray, infirm figure of the deceased doctor, reading the newspaper, as was his wont. His own death must have been recorded that very morning in that very newspaper. I have no recollection of being greatly discomposed at the moment, or, indeed, that I felt any extraordinary emotion whatsoever. Probably, if ghosts were in the habit of coming among us, they would coincide with the ordinary train of affairs and melt into them so familiarly that we should not be shocked at their presence. At all events, so it was in this instance. We'll include a link to the full recollection of Hawthorne in this week's show notes. The 30-minute tour takes place on Wednesday, December 19th at 11 a.m. Call Visitor Services at 617-720-7612 to purchase a $10 ticket. And now it's time for this week's main topic. In episode 13, back before we implemented some improvements to our audio quality, we discussed Catherine Nanny Naylor. Boston's original nasty woman. 
Boston in the 1600s was a theocracy, where the Puritan church ruled, and women were seen in many ways as the property of their husbands or fathers. Against that backdrop, a woman named Catherine Nanny Naylor stands out. She was able to win a divorce against her abusive and unfaithful husband, then spent the next 30 years as an entrepreneur. She provided herself and her family with a prosperous lifestyle while living her life independently. Our story begins in 1636, just six years after Boston was founded, in the midst of a period known as the Great Migration. Starting with the Winthrop Fleet in 1630, the next decade brought about 20,000 Puritan immigrants from England to the shores of North America. One of these new immigrants was a young girl named Catherine Wheelwright, the daughter of a Puritan minister named John Wheelwright. Wheelwright brought his family to Boston in May of 1636, during the peak of the migration period. It was also the peak of the antinomian controversy, in which Anne Hutchinson and her followers clashed with the church hierarchy over the role of faith and works in obtaining salvation. John Wheelwright was Hutchinson's brother-in-law, and he was soon preaching a theology that lay more in line with hers than that of the established church. By March of 1637, he was on trial, and in November of that year, he was sentenced to banishment. Since he had young children, the court was willing to let him wait until the following spring to depart the colony if he would just agree to shut up until then. Of course, he refused to stop preaching and was ejected into the New England winter, making his way north to New Hampshire. The family, including little Catherine, followed in the spring of 1638. Catherine's early life was hard as the family moved across the New Hampshire and Maine frontiers from settlement to settlement, staying out of reach of the Puritan authorities. By the time Catherine was about 14, Massachusetts Bay Colony was willing to forgive and forget, but her father was not. He remained on the frontier until he finally returned to England in 1655. After the family had moved to what's now Exeter, New Hampshire in 1646, Catherine met a wealthy merchant named Robert Nanny. They married sometime before 1653 and moved to Boston's North End. Nanny traded in lumber and salt cod, and he administered an estate he held in the Caribbean. The couple had their first child in 1653, and they would go on to have a total of eight children. Unfortunately, only two of them would live to adulthood. As was more or less customary at the time, Robert Nanny's will specified that his property should be held in trust for his children, with Catherine as trustee. And, unfortunately for the family, he did die in 1663, when he was 50 and Catherine was about 33 years old. Women at that time were not considered full and autonomous citizens, so as was customary, Catherine remarried fairly quickly. Sometime before 1666, she had married a North End neighbor and fellow merchant named Edward Naylor. Unfortunately, Edward turned out to be, well, a bit of a bastard. Soon after their second child was born, his behavior became outrageous. He was physically abusive to Catherine and to the children. In later testimony, servants said that he would throw food, plates, and even chairs at Catherine and the kids. He repeatedly pushed one of his small children to the ground, and he kicked the other one down a flight of stairs. The abuse was bad enough, but his infidelity seems to have been the straw that broke the camel's back. Edward made advances on servants and on other women he came in contact with, whether the attention was welcome or not. An 18-year-old household servant said that he had come home drunk one night and tried to kiss and grope her, but she ran, later testifying, 
I suppose he was so drunk he could not follow me. Eventually, he found a lover who would take him. His affair with another servant named Mary Reed was revealed while they were recognized traveling together in New Hampshire and looking for a place for Mary to give birth to their love child. Catherine would later recall how she fell ill after being served beer by Mary Reed. Neighbors had seen Mary trying to buy henbane in the market, a notorious poison, so she was also accused of trying to kill Catherine. And, as a personal note, you can throw a chair at me if you want, but hands off my beer. Finally, Catherine had enough. In 1671, she petitioned the Superior Court for release against the cruelty and oppression and many abuses she frequently, indeed daily, receives from her husband, besides his whoredoms and abuses of the marriage bed. I'm not certain that it was the first in Massachusetts, but it is the earliest divorce I've seen here. And while divorce seems surprising for a theocracy like Puritan Massachusetts Bay Colony, they viewed marriage as a civil contract, and in cases of abuse or adultery, there was a provision for divorce. And Catherine's case certainly qualified. Edward and Mary decamped to Maine while the divorce proceedings were in process, went into the fur trade, and sank into obscurity. In the years that followed, Catherine's eldest children died, and the property that had been held in trust for them reverted to Catherine's name. Take that, patriarchy! In the words of one historian, Catherine Naylor's identity shifted dramatically between 1668 and 1674. She went from being the wife of Edward Naylor to a woman who belonged to no one but her children. At some point, she realized that her interests no longer lay with her husband, and that her identity could no longer lie there either. However, she did still have the two younger children who Edward had fathered, and she needed to find a way to take care of them. Our story up to this point has been supported by the documentary record of Catherine and Edward's divorce. From the time of their divorce until Catherine's last will and testament, there's little documentary evidence of life in the nanny household. I say nanny because Catherine went back to using her first husband's name after the divorce, Catherine Nanny. However, there is plenty of evidence of their lives. In 1992, during the Big Dig, archaeologists digging in a parking lot under the elevated Southeast Expressway found the remains of a privy, an outhouse that is, that they linked to Catherine Nanny's household. And the contents of that privy reveal quite a bit about Catherine's life. First of all, there are remains of silk and lace garments that indicate that she was doing pretty well for herself. How is she providing an upper-middle-class lifestyle to her family? Well, the privy was a three-holer, so she had a pretty large home, leading to speculation that she was operating a boarding house. There was also an unnaturally large number of cherry pits, perhaps indicating that she was baking, or maybe even that she was making some illegal hooch. The trust she had inherited from her first husband also included a wharf and property holdings in Maine, both of which she was operating. Between her domestic entrepreneurship and her business holdings, she was apparently doing okay for herself, which meant that she could indulge in a forbidden pastime. The most famous artifact found in this famous privy was a small wooden sphere with a dimple in one side. It's the remains of the oldest known bowling ball in North America. Not the bowling game we know today with a wooden lane and gutters and pins. It was a lawn bowling game, more similar to today's bocce. 
The dimple would have held a lead weight with an ivory covering, and a player would bowl that weighted ball after another ball in the grass. This is revealing, because bowling was illegal in Boston for most of Catherine's adult life. Puritan Boston prohibited bowling for the same reason it prohibited cards. Any pastime that could tempt a person to gamble could not be allowed. So for Catherine to be in possession of a bowling ball, she must have also had a walled yard to allow for some privacy. Again, a woman of some means. Regulations against bowling started to be loosened in the early 1700s, but by then Catherine had retired. She was no longer able to operate her house, and her daughters were married and lived far away. In 1700, she moved in with friends in Charlestown, and she lived with them for the rest of her life. Catherine Nanny, alias Naylor, passed away in 1716. She was a woman in an era that insisted that women only existed as the reflection of the men in their lives. But thanks to the documentary evidence of her divorce and the rich archaeology of her privy, we have the record of a strong, independent woman, and that seems just perfect for an episode I'm recording in the evening after the Boston Women's March. In episode 82, we took you to the beach for Memorial Day weekend. 111 years ago, champion swimmer Annette Kellerman was arrested on Revere Beach. Her crime? Appearing in public in a one-piece bathing suit of her own design. Along with being a record-setting swimmer, Kellerman was a fitness and wellness guru, a vaudeville producer, movie actress, and a clothing designer. Besides her athletic prowess, she was known for her physical beauty, appearing in Hollywood's first nude scene. A Harvard professor would go so far as to claim that he had scientific proof that she was the most beautifully formed woman of modern times. Puritanical Boston wasn't prepared to see the exposed arms of such a specimen, so Kellerman was arrested for indecent exposure. A book by Australian National University historian Angela Woolicott recounts Annette Kellerman's own version of what went down on Revere Beach that fateful day in 1907. She planned to go for a three-mile swim and walked down Revere Beach towards the water in her usual one-piece boys' racing suit. Others on the beach gathered around her with mixed reactions, and a policeman soon arrested her for indecent exposure. In 1953, the Boston Globe published a retrospective interview with Kellerman, where she talked about the arrest. My arrest in Boston, which hit the headlines in America, was really a mistake. I was scheduled for a 13-mile meet in Boston and went to Revere Beach to train. There were ladies there in the fantastic beach costumes of the time. Dresses, underwear, corsets, shoes, complete to two antimacassars on their heads. Me, arrested. We were all terribly shocked, especially my father, for I was his innocent, protected little girl. Annette was in Revere that day to train for a race called the Boston Light Swim. I'll admit that I'm a little bit obsessed with this event, 1907 was the inaugural race, but it's still being held. Today, racers swim from Boston Light, the lighthouse on Little Brewster Island in the Outer Harbor, to the L Street Bathhouse in South Boston. The route swings around George's Island, Rainsford Island, Long Island, and Thompson Island before landing at L Street. I go to the YMCA and swim a mile in the pool a couple of times a week, and that's hard enough. With tides and currents, these folks end up swimming over 10 miles in cold water with no wetsuits allowed. That's hardcore. Back in 1907, the course ran in the opposite direction. Swimmers would begin at the Charlestown Bridge and swim out to Little Brewster Island. The course was about 13 or 14 miles and, like today, 
conditions could mean swimmers would end up covering a lot more distance. If she was going to cover 13 miles of cold, open water, Annette wanted to do it in a practical swimsuit. As the BBC notes, in her native Australia, women taking part in competitions had worn short-legged, non-skirted costumes, the same as men's, since the 1870s. For years, Kellerman had worn a slightly modified boys' racing suit, which actually would have looked pretty similar to a modern women's Olympic swimsuit. The standard garment was one piece, with shorts that fell to the mid-thigh or below, and a tank top. For her own use, Annette Kellerman added darting to accommodate her breasts and sewed a pair of stockings to the bottom of the shorts. When she was arrested for indecent exposure, the only skin Kellerman was showing would have been her arms and her face. Kellerman's suit may not have looked like much, but she had constructed it for racing, not for the runway. In May of 1907, she told the Ohio Chronicle-Telegram, The best costume is the cheap, ordinary stocknet suit, which clings close to the figure, and the closer the better. It should be sleeveless, and there should be no skirts. They are very pretty and appropriate for the seaside, but not for the swimming pool. The turn of the 20th century doesn't seem like a very fun time to be a woman at the beach. While their husbands and fathers were off swimming and frolicking, the womenfolk would be clinging to a rope attached to an offshore buoy, praying that the waves wouldn't knock them down and drown them in their unwieldy bathing costumes. According to the Victoriana website, their clumsy Victorian and Edwardian-style bathing suits were often quite burdensome. Women typically dressed in black, knee-length, puffed-sleeve wool dresses, often featuring a sailor collar and worn-over bloomers trimmed with ribbon and bows. The bathing suit was accessorized with long black stockings, lace-up bathing slippers, and fancy caps. The impractical clothing meant few women could swim, which could have tragic results. In 1904, the steamer General Slocum caught fire in New York Harbor. Over 1,000 of the 1,300 passengers aboard, mostly women and children, drowned due to their heavy, waterlogged clothing and lack of practice with swimming. The disaster would have been fresh in everyone's mind when Annette Kellerman appeared in court the day after her arrest. She told the judge that she had no intent to be indecent, that she was only interested in safety and athletics. What difference is there from these legal costumes than wearing lead chains around our legs, she asked. Women can't learn to swim wearing more stuff than you can hang on a clothesline. The judge had mercy, saying that she could continue to wear her special swimsuit as long as she wore a long skirt or cape to hide her figure until she was in the water. Willicott points out that she made the most of the arrest and release. Certainly her Boston arrest and the trial that followed attracted national and international publicity that helped to make her a household name. The fact that she had already spent months performing at Revere Beach and building a fair amount of local fame may have helped her case as well. Annette Kellerman's appearance on Revere Beach in her unusual bathing costume was no accident. At the time, there was no such thing as jetting off to Maui for a beach vacation, and most people didn't have the resources to make a long journey to Myrtle Beach or the Outer Banks, or even Cape Cod. In 1875, the Boston, Revere Beach, and Lynn Narrow Gauge Railroad linked Revere to downtown Boston, 
and in 1896, the state took three miles of privately owned seashore by eminent domain. With wide, gently sloping sandy beaches and easy access by steamer or streetcar, by the turn of the 20th century, Revere Beach was one of Boston's favorite places to spend a summer afternoon. Landscape architect Charles Eliot, the protege of Frederick Law Olmsted, designed the waterfront to emphasize views of the beach, saying, What was it that the Metropolitan District sought to secure when it purchased this costly seacoast reservation? It was the grand and refreshing sight of the natural sea beach with its long, simple curve and its open view of the ocean. Nothing in the world presents a more striking contrast to the jumbled, noisy scenery of a great town. Soon the beach was lined with hotels and romantic rental cottages. There were amusement parks and roller coasters, bowling alleys and shooting galleries, Great Ocean Pier extending a quarter mile out into the harbor, and of course, nightclubs and dance halls to keep the good times rolling well into the night. When Annette Kellerman steered a course for America in 1906, she planned to parlay her swimming talents into a career at amusement parks. She started at Chicago's White City Park, but before long, she was lured to Wonderland along Revere Beach. She did high dives and extended underwater ballet routines in a clear tank on stage, during which she would hold her breath underwater for almost three minutes at a time. Biographer Woolicott says, During these early days when she was single and not yet a celebrity, she remembered she spent many happy hours with friends in backstage life. While working at Wonderland, she boarded with another worker there and his mother. Two years later, his wife, suing for divorce, explained that when Kellerman boarded with Herbert Patty and his mother, she and Patty would sit for hours in the kitchen, drinking beer and eating crackers and cheese. Sounds to me like Annette knew how to have a good time. She had been in the U.S. for a year and in Revere for a season before her arrest. She knew the local customs and she knew what American swimming costumes were like. She had to know that she was going to get arrested when she went strolling down the beach in her scandalously revealing swimsuit, leaving her upper arms exposed for all the world to see. One has to imagine that this was a publicity stunt, and Woolicott concludes, Certainly, her Boston arrest and the trial that followed attracted national and international publicity that helped to make her a household name. Kellerman had been working hard at becoming a household name for years at that point. Back in Australia, the March 27, 1902 issue of the Sydney Daily Telegraph carries a brief news item on the recent Ladies' Swimming Championship meet for residents of New South Wales. It contains some of the earliest news coverage of a teenage girl who would soon become a global celebrity. Miss Annette Kellerman distinguished herself by appropriating the 100 yards and quarter mile Ladies' Championships of New South Wales somewhat easily. Annette Kellerman was 15 when she started winning championships, and she would later recall that at that age, she caught mermaid fever. She was born in 1886 to a French mother and an Australian father, both of whom were professional musicians. As a small child, she had a disorder that led to bow-leggedness and very weak legs. Some sources report that it was polio, but many sources we looked at said that it was due to rickets. She was forced to wear heavy metal braces to straighten out her legs, and she used a cane to get around. When her legs began to straighten, doctors recommended teaching her how to swim as a way to regain some strength in her legs. 
Kellerman would later recall, When I was a little tot, about six years old, Dad took me to Cavill's Baths in Sydney, Australia, to learn to swim. Each day we walked with my brother and sister through the beautiful botanical gardens with its wondrous view of the most famous harbor in the world to our swimming lesson. I was awfully scared and did not learn quickly, but Mr. Percy Cavill, who was my teacher, never frightened me, so I soon lost all fear. Before I was 13 years old, I was like a fish in the water. As a teenager, Kellerman loved dancing, and she loved swimming, and she had little time for school. By 1903, she was giving paid swimming exhibitions at the Royal Theatre in Melbourne, with her family's reluctant support. Her mother didn't think that these public displays were proper for a woman, but the family had fallen on hard times, and Annette's swimming was bringing in money. Soon she was performing in Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, and around the country. The secret to her success may have been her willingness to appear in public in swimsuits that were considered revealing even by the more relaxed standards of Australia. In April 1905, she added distance swimming to her aquatic repertoire. She was only the second person to ever swim a particular 10-mile stretch of the Yarra River, which passes through downtown Melbourne, and the first person to accomplish it in 20 years. Long-distance swims like that always made a spectacle, and Annette Kellerman and her father would ride the wave of publicity it generated all the way to Europe in 1905. Annette's first stop on her European tour was London, and the first thing she did upon arriving in London was to undertake a marathon swim. Angela Woolacott explains, Her 26-mile swim down the Thames from Putney to Blackwall, soon after they arrived in 1905, was a stunt her father suggested as a way to grab publicity, and it worked. She swam for three and a half hours through what she remembered as oily water amid tugboats and barges. But when she reached the Blackwall docks, journalists alerted ahead of time by her father were there. Because of that swim, the Daily Mirror contracted Kellerman for eight weeks to swim five days a week from one seaside resort to another between Dover and Margate, a total of about 45 miles a week, as preparation for an attempt at the Channel for eight guineas a week. During the summer of 1905, at just 19 years old, Annette made three attempts to swim the English Channel, all of which were sponsored by the Daily Mirror. A 2017 BBC story quotes Kellerman expert Peter Cox on the newspaper's interest in her swimming career. At the time, the Daily Mirror was pioneering the use of photographs in newspapers. So what better things to show than photographs of a woman in a swimsuit? The newspaper sponsored the channel attempt and dedicated many column inches to it. This made her famous. Annette Kellerman was only the second woman to attempt to swim the channel. The first had been Austrian Baroness Valperga von Isicescu, who was then considered the best swimmer in Europe. No woman would be successful until 1926. While Kellerman's attempt at the channel were unsuccessful, they certainly left her with interesting anecdotes, like the one about the time a man proposed to her while she was in the middle of the channel. Rather a unique place for an offer of marriage. I call it my channel proposal. A well-known swimmer, and a very fine one too, paced me during my swim. After a half hour or so of silence, to my great amusement, he turned suddenly and said, 
We go very well together in the double harness, don't you think? And forthwith made a proposal of marriage. Surprised? Yes. But more amused, I think. I told him I preferred waiting until I saw him out of the water, as I would never marry a little man. I met him after at the supper given in my honor, and found that he was of short stature, so I declined his flattering offer. With her fame secure, Kellerman traveled around continental Europe in 1906, entering races and giving exhibitions of distance swimming on the Seine, the Rhine, and the Danube. It was on the Danube that she faced Baroness Isachescu and secured the bragging rights as the best female swimmer in the world. A brief blurb in the June 22, 1906 issue of the Brisbane, Queensland newspaper, The Week, records, Miss Annette Kellerman recently swam 37 kilometers, about 23 miles, in the Danube in 3 hours, 11 minutes, and 20 seconds, defeating Madame Isachescu, the Austrian swimmer. All those big open-water swims in Europe earned Annette publicity, and they helped her prepare for big events in the U.S., like the Boston Light Swim. After her 1907 arrest, we couldn't find evidence that she completed the inaugural Boston Light Swim that same year. No articles we could find gave her time, and the official history of the event says that the only finisher in 1907 was a man, with two other men dropping out. The following summer, though, she swam to Boston Light, making headlines all around the country. For example, here's what the Clarksburg, West Virginia Daily Telegram of August 1st, 1908 had to say. Great swim. By a girl. Annette Kellerman goes 19 miles from Boston Harbor. Annette Kellerman, the champion woman swimmer of the world who hails from Australia, performed a feat that for 50 years the best men swimmers of the world have failed to do. She swam from Boston Harbor to Boston Light, 15 miles on a direct line, and she did it in the face of a strong tide and wind that was almost a gale. To add to the triumph, her accompanying boat carried her all along the shoreline instead of striking directly for the light, thus adding about four miles to the distance. Another newspaper account says that she completed the swim from the Charlestown Bridge to Little Brewster Island in six hours and 20 minutes. The modern race is only 8 to 10 miles and runs in the other direction, but for a reference, the 2017 winner completed the swim in 2 hours and 49 minutes, and the first woman finished in 3 hours and 6 minutes. Great swim. For a girl. A better comparison might be Helen Lynn's 2015 double Boston light swim, where she swam from the L Street bathhouse to Boston light and back, over 16 miles in just under 8 hours. It makes Annette Kellerman's 19-mile battle against ties and currents seem pretty impressive. In the year between Kellerman's first and second attempts at the Boston Light Swim, a lot had changed in her life. First, news coverage of her arrest for indecency had its desired effect. Women around the United States were clamoring to get their hands on one of these newfangled swimming suits that would allow a woman to actually swim. Instead of modifying a boy's racing suit, Annette was soon designing and marketing her own line of swimming attire, including some models with short legs that fell above the knee, making them even more shocking than the one that she had been arrested for. For decades, one-piece swimsuits would be referred to as Annette Kellerman's, even when sold by a different company. By November 1908, 
The swimwear bearing her name was so ubiquitous that the Boston Post published this poem comparing her to the Gibson girl, then considered the peak of feminine beauty. No more the Gibson bathing girl shall grace the Newport summer whirl. Annette declares her garments wrong, at both ends too extremely long. The Gibson girl may be a peach, as she perambulates the beach. But now, if in the swim she'd be, she must with sweet Annette agree. Her heavy skirt she must replace with filmy raiment for the race. Think you she will consent to dress in such approach to nothingness? Ooh la la. Even in 1936, nearly 30 years after her arrest, Kellerman could be found presiding over a bathing suit fashion show in Florida where her original overall coverall had a place of honor. We're still in Florida to see some seaweed costumes and meet Annette Kellerman, dancing belle of Granddad's Day. It's a bathing suit fashion show, and the accessories of old are on display for Father Neptune and company. Here's a fetching number and some 1890 novelties. The Annette Kellerman overall coverall. And now for the 1936 stuff. First are the scanty suits leaving much to the elements, but little to the imagination. The other major change that came to Annette Kellerman in 1907 was her Broadway debut. She'd been discovered on Revere Beach by promoter B.F. Keith. He hired her to perform two shows a day at the Keith and Proctor Fifth Avenue Theater for $300 a week. That's over $7,600 a week in 2018 dollars. Not bad for the daughter of two struggling musicians. When her seven-week engagement with Keith and Proctor expired, she moved from one New York theater to another, billed as The Diving Venus or The Australian Mermaid. In 1909, Keith and Proctor hired her back, this time for the unheard-of sum of $1,500 a week. Again, if you do the math, that's in the ballpark of $38,000 a week now. She performed amazing high dives, long underwater scenes, and pioneered the concept of synchronized swimming with her backup performers. Still, news coverage makes it clear that her willingness to wear a form-fitting swimsuit accounted for no small part of her fame, as this article that otherwise complains about the indecency of vaudeville acts makes clear. Annette Kellerman, the diving Venus, has a good excuse not to mention a good figure for dressing as she does. It is a joy to see her spring into the air and take a header into the tank. Of course, some people might say that she leaves little to the imagination when she gets wet down and trots around in a suit that clings closer than... But oh, splash! The following year, in 1910, Kellerman took her own vaudeville troupe on a national tour. In yet another stroke of marketing genius... Her tour coincided with an article that ran in the New York Times Sunday Magazine under the headline, Modern Woman Getting Nearer the Perfect Figure. Dr. Dudley Allen Sargent, director of the Harvard Gymnasium, ran a study to debunk the common belief at the time that American women were becoming more masculine over the generations. The counterexample he pointed to was none other than Annette Kellerman. Dr. Sargent, who is the foremost authority upon the physical development of women, has collected measurements of over 10,000 women students. 
From Wellesley, Radcliffe, Smith, and Vassar have come many hundreds of business-like measurement cards, which he has utilized in reaching his conclusions. Several years ago, he directed the modeling of two nude figures which represented the typical male and female as found among college students. The ages selected were between 18 and 25 years. As an aside, Sargent was taking the measurements of 10,000 female college students and translating them into nude sculptures. Teaching at Harvard must have been a pretty sweet gig. The article continues. Never has Dr. Sargent found either the ideal male figure or the ideal female figure, he says. Among the many thousands who have been examined at the gymnasium, not one has fulfilled every requirement. Annette Kellerman, the professional swimmer, whom he examined not long ago, is near the ideal type, he says. Kellerman was never one to let an opportunity like that pass her by. Soon, the promotional posters for her vaudeville show billed her as Annette Kellerman, the perfect woman. The measurements taken by Dr. Sargent were printed right on the poster, from her chest, waist, and hips right down to the circumference of her head and ankles. A chart labeled Measurements That Almost Surpass Belief compared them favorably to the measurements of the Venus de Milo and, somewhat dubiously, the goddess Diana. Having conquered athletics in the stage, Annette Kellerman now turned to the business of fitness advice. The Sargent article was nationwide news, and Kellerman would say that she had been scientifically proven to be the most beautiful woman alive. Capitalizing on the situation, she published magazine articles and newspaper editorials on the benefits of swimming and other forms of exercise starting in 1909. She wrote the books The Body Beautiful in 1912 and Physical Beauty, How to Keep It in 1918. Kellerman gave lectures on fitness and nutrition from New York to San Francisco and started a series of correspondence courses in late 1912, promising to reduce or increase your weight, improve your health, perfect your figure. Her testimonial for the course said, Become my pupil, and I will make you my friend. Devote but 15 minutes daily to my system, and you can weigh what nature intended. You can reduce any part of your figure burdened with superfluous flesh or build up any part that is undeveloped. My system stimulates, reorganizes, and regenerates your entire body. My latest book, The Body Beautiful, should be read by every woman, and I will send it to you free. It explodes the fallacy that lack of beauty or health cannot be avoided. In it, I explain how every woman can be vigorous, healthy, and attractive. Angela Woolicott, this time quoted by the BBC, says, She represented the fit, active, and spectacular female body, and urged other women to throw away their corsets and become fit and healthy. She saw herself as something of a guru for women's fitness, but others also saw her as an icon of feminine modernity. Her life as a celebrity fitness guru makes it sound as though Annette Kellerman would fit perfectly in today's media landscape. In keeping with that trend, she made the leap from stage to silver screen in 1913. Her first feature film was called Neptune's Daughter, and it of course featured plenty of underwater scenes and daring high dives, including a scene in which she is bound hand and foot and hurled off a 65-foot cliff into the sea. 
Annette appeared in several more movies in the next few years, always performing her own stunts. In later years, she would remember the 1916 film Daughter of the Gods as the best thing I ever did, because she did many hair-raising stunts and was never doubled, including doing a 72-foot dive from a tower and being thrown to the crocodiles. Perhaps swimming in a pool full of live crocodiles was only the second most daring thing she did in filming Daughter of the Gods. In several scenes, she appears nude, the first time a major Hollywood production included a nude woman, though each time her hair or the scenery was artfully arranged to conceal the naughty bits. A critic opined that Daughter was a photo play carefully calculated to shock the late Anthony Comstock and certain to please many others. As you probably guessed, the movie was banned in Boston. The production company spent nearly a year filming Daughter of the Gods in Jamaica. They employed a cast of 2,000, used up to 20,000 extras, brought in circus animals for some scenes, cast local children to fill a village of gnomes, changed the course of a river to create a more photogenic waterfall, and generally speaking, created a spectacle of excess. It was the first movie to burn through a million-dollar budget, earning Annette Kellerman the nickname The Million Dollar Mermaid. She starred in several more silent films in the coming years, but never quite made the transition to talkies. Instead, she returned to vaudeville and to displays of diving and swimming prowess. A generation later, another swimmer-turned-actress would take on the moniker of Million Dollar Mermaid. American Esther Williams was a teenage swimming champion. When the 1940 Olympics were canceled due to the outbreak of World War II, she turned to acting instead, appearing in many aquatic spectaculars similar to the ones Kellerman had produced. In 1952, Williams played Kellerman in the biopic Million Dollar Mermaid. Without getting into the details, we'll just say that the movie is highly fictionalized. Suffice it to say that it features both canine star Rin Tin Tin and a boxing kangaroo. Nevertheless, the action does peak in a courtroom scene after Williams Kellerman is arrested on a Boston beach for wearing a one-piece swimsuit that's too daring for its time. The real Annette Kellerman eventually moved back to Australia living with her sister along the Gold Coast in Queensland. She died there in 1975. Her arrest on Revere Beach had propelled her to international stardom, allowing her to become a media darling, fashion designer, fitness guru, and star of stage and screen. At the same time, it introduced women around the country and around the world to the concept of fitness and exercise and freed them from their restrictive Victorian bathing costumes and slowly allowed them to adopt swimsuits that allowed for actual swimming. Episode 94 discussed Amelia Earhart in Boston. You probably know about Amelia Earhart's famous career as a groundbreaking aviator, and you almost certainly know about her famous disappearance over the Pacific. But you may not know about Amelia Earhart's first career as a social worker in one of Boston's many settlement houses. We discussed her early exposure to aviation, the famed Friendship Crossing, and also her reflections on her career of service to newly immigrated Americans. Amelia Earhart arrived in Boston in 1924 at the age of 27, 
having seen and experienced a great deal since her birth in Atchison, Kansas in 1897. Amelia's grandfather, Alfred Otis, served as a federal judge before becoming the president of the local bank. His accomplishments should have led to a comfortable life for his grandchildren, but her father battled alcoholism, and as a result, he failed to prosper as a country lawyer. Nevertheless, Amelia had an unconventional and somewhat privileged childhood. Her mother did not aspire to raise her daughters to be delicate flowers. She encouraged Amelia and her sister Grace to explore, adventure, and play a little rough, all while dressed in bloomers. It's worth noting that such dress was highly unusual for little girls at the time. In 1904, with the help of her uncle, she cobbled together a homemade ramp fashioned after a roller coaster she had seen on a trip to St. Louis, and secured the ramp to the roof of the family tool shed. Seven-year-old Earhart's first flight ended less than ideally. She emerged from the broken wooden box that had served as a sled with a bruised lip, torn dress, and a thirst for more. She exclaimed, oh, it's just like flying. After several family moves and a combination of homeschooling and public school, Earhart graduated from Chicago's Hyde Park High School in 1916. Throughout her childhood, she had aspired to a future career, and she kept a scrapbook of newspaper clippings about successful women in predominantly male-oriented fields, including film direction and production, law, advertising, management, and mechanical engineering. During Christmas vacation in 1917, Earhart visited her sister in Toronto. World War I had been raging, and Earhart saw the returning wounded soldiers. After receiving training as a nurse's aide from the Red Cross, she began work with the Voluntary Aid Detachment at Spadina Military Hospital. Her duties included preparing food in the kitchen for patients with special diets and handing out prescribed medication in the hospital's dispensary. Unfortunately, this work had grave health consequences. When the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic reached Toronto, Earhart was engaged in arduous nursing duties that included night shifts at the Spadina Military Hospital. She was soon suffering from pneumonia and maxillary sinusitis. She was hospitalized in early November of 1918 and discharged in December, about two months after the illness had started. Her sinus-related symptoms were pain and pressure around one eye and copious mucus drainage via the nostrils and throat. While staying in the hospital during the pre-antibiotic era, she had painful minor operations to wash out the affected maxillary sinus. But these procedures were not successful, and Earhart subsequently suffered from worsening headaches. Her convalescence lasted nearly a year. Chronic sinusitis significantly affected Earhart's flying activities in later life, and sometimes even on the airfield, where she was forced to wear a bandage on her cheek to cover a small drainage tube. But she was one of the lucky ones. Tune in next week for our episode marking the 100-year anniversary of the Spanish flu outbreak. Around the world, influenza killed almost 100 million people in 1918. The Spanish flu isn't the only formative experience Amelia had in Toronto. She and a friend visited an airfield in conjunction with the Canadian National Exhibition. One of the highlights of that day was a flying exhibition put on by a World War I ace. While in flight, the pilot spotted Earhart and her friend, who were watching from an isolated clearing, and dived at them. In her book Last Flight, she describes the experience. 
I am sure he said to himself, watch me make them scamper. She stood her ground as the aircraft came close. I did not understand it at the time, she said, but I believe that that little red airplane said something to me as it swished by. By 1919, Earhart prepared to enter Smith College, but changed her mind and enrolled at Columbia University in a course in medical studies, among other programs. Unfortunately, she quit a year later to be with her parents in California. In Long Beach, on December 28, 1920, Earhart and her father visited an airfield where Amelia took a flight that changed the trajectory of her life. By the time I had got to two or three hundred feet off the ground, she said, I knew I had to fly, and after that ten-minute flight, she was determined to learn how. Working at a variety of jobs, including photographer, truck driver, and stenographer at the local telephone company, she managed to save $1,000 for flying lessons. Earhart had her first lesson on January 3, 1921, at Kenner Field near Long Beach. Her teacher was Anita Netta Snook, a pioneer female aviator who used a surplus Curtis JN-4 Canuck for training. In order to reach the airfield, Earhart had to take a bus to the end of the line, then walk four miles. But she was in the best hands. Snook was the first woman aviator in Iowa, the first woman student accepted at the Curtis Flying School in Virginia, first woman aviator to run her own aviation business, and first woman to run a commercial airfield. Amelia went all in. Aware that other aviators would be judging her, she slept in her new leather jacket for three nights to give it a worn look. She also cropped her hair short in the style of other female flyers. Six months later, she purchased a second-hand, bright yellow Kenner Airster biplane that she nicknamed the Canary. On October 22, 1922, about a year and a half after her first lesson, Earhart flew the Airster to an altitude of 14,000 feet, setting a world record for female pilots. On May 15, 1923, Earhart became the 16th woman in the United States to be issued a pilot's license. Unfortunately, following a disastrous investment in a failed gypsum mine, Earhart's inheritance from her grandmother, which was now administered by her mother, dried up. Consequently, she had to sell the canary she purchased a slightly more practical mode of transit, a yellow Kissel Speedster two-passenger sports car, which she named the Yellow Peril. Following her parents' divorce in 1924, she drove her mother in the Yellow Peril on a transcontinental trip from California that brought them to Boston, where Earhart underwent yet another sinus operation to address her chronic issues. After recuperation, she returned to Columbia University for several months, but was forced to abandon her studies because her mother could no longer afford the tuition fees. Soon after, she found employment first as a teacher, then as a social worker in 1925 at Denison House, a Boston settlement house. You may recall mentions of settlement houses in our past episodes. As a refresher, settlement houses originated in London in the late 19th century as a new model for charity. Typically staffed by college students, Settlement houses engaged young men and women who had access to education and resources as teachers, social workers, and essentially early social justice advocates. They lived in the houses, located in low-income, often immigrant neighborhoods, and worked with residents rather than for them. 
As modeled by United South End Settlements, which is still operating in the South End today, the premise was to bring together people from different backgrounds in a diverse, inclusive setting to equip children and families with the education and tools needed to achieve economic stability. A book published by the South End House in 1899 opens with a very logical reason for providing opportunities to those not born to fortune. The laws which govern the birth of genius are inscrutable. Since the manual labor classes are four or five times as numerous as all other classes put together, it is not unlikely that more than half of the best natural genius that is born in the country belongs to them. And of this, a great part is fruitless for want of opportunity. The author goes on to explain the gap in service between the most impoverished residents and those with a high degree of wealth. Of late years in Boston, large additions have been made to the resources of our great educational institutions. Some of the older charitable foundations have also been much increased. In the meantime, however, certain new undertakings combining the motives both of education and charity have arisen under the urgency of a situation which has been gradually coming to light. The vast majority of the population of Boston is made up of working people. It is found that about 10% of those, a submerged tenth, are affected by charitable agencies. Popular educational institutions, aside from the public schools, probably also touch about 10%, an aristocracy of labor. But what of the 80%, more or less, who are not thus accessible either through their necessities on the one hand or their ambitions on the other? On account of deep-seated industrial, racial, and religious prejudices, this great middle class of labor is influenced hardly at all by the older forms of philanthropic effort. So far as Boston is concerned, the newly devised line of action was first fully expressed in the founding of the South End House, a university settlement. At this house, it has been convincingly shown that by simple, friendly fellowship, it is possible to penetrate into the thick of the 80%, among whom are critical industrial and municipal difficulties center, in whose conditions of life are found many of the provoking causes of pauperism and crime, who possess among them a large share of the best innate gifts of mind and heart. The established efforts of education and charity must, of course, not be one which relaxed, they ought to be more strongly reinforced. Yet the fact remains that there is a vast and imminent problem which is almost wholly out of their range. This is the problem with which the South End House for the past seven years has specifically concerned itself. While the South End House was the first settlement house in Boston, opening as Andover House on January 1, 1892, many others sprang up quickly including Denison House later the same year. Denison House was donated by Cornelia Lyman Warren as one of the earliest branches of the College Settlements Association. The CSA had been founded in 1887 by a small group of Wellesley College faculty and alumna, including labor organizer Vita Scudder and noted pacifist and Nobel Prize winner Emily Green Balsh. Denison House was modeled after Jane Addams' Hull House in Chicago. Its mission was to provide Boston's poor with social services and education, not only for philanthropic purposes, but to break down class barriers. 
the women hoped that bringing people of different backgrounds together under one roof would further the purpose of democracy, which they defined as a free-flowing life between group and group. A recent Boston Globe magazine article describes the political climate that the settlements responded to. Earhart lived in Denison House on Tyler Street, serving immigrant families any way she could. Many of them were struggling under new anti-immigration policies. Exhausted by floods of refugees pouring into the country from troubled nations around the world, Congress and the White House had set quotas restricting who could come in and from where. It wasn't an accident that these quotas favored white Christian immigrants from Northern and Western Europe, while making entry difficult, if not impossible, for Italians and Mexicans, Russians and Poles, Chinese and Japanese. The undesirables, the press sometimes called them. The quota law, as it was informally known, broke up families, preventing wives and children who were from the undesired lands from joining husbands and fathers in America. And the law also helped turn immigrant smuggling into a big business. Desperate people paid $500 at times for a long-shot chance of getting to America, a chance that often didn't pan out. In her position at Denison House, Earhart surely heard these stories, getting a snapshot of America that most never saw. She organized evening English classes for immigrant men and women. She often followed up on their lives personally, making visits to their apartments in the South End and sharing home-cooked meals around their tables. She was by turns a teacher, a counselor, and even a nurse, driving sick children to the hospital. And always she was writing, taking notes. I shall try to keep my contact with the women who have come to class, Earhart wrote in one such note. Mrs. S. and her drunken husband. Mrs. F.'s struggle to get her husband here. Mrs. Z.'s to get her papers in the face of odds. All are problems that are hard to relinquish after a year's friendship. The original Denison House was located at 93 Tyler Street, a red brick row house across from the old Josiah Quincy School. It quickly outgrew that space, and the adjoining house was added on. By the 1920s, it occupied five row houses with a shared entrance at number 93. It was during this era that Amelia Earhart came to Denison House. She describes her experience there in her book, The Fun of It. The place where I found myself was Denison House, Boston's second oldest social center. It stood in a little island of residences, surrounded by warehouses and other buildings, in a lower corner of town. The island had at one time been a rather nice section, and many of the tenements, homes of well-to-do people. The stone fronts of some of the houses, the high ceilings and curving banisters inside, were mute reminders of a more glorious past. The people I met through Denison House were as interesting as any I have ever known. The neighborhood was mostly Syrian and Chinese, with a few Italians and Irish mixed in. I had never been privileged to know much about how people other than Americans lived. Now I discovered manners and modes very different from those which I was familiar. Under my very nose, Oriental ideas and the homegrown variety were trying to get along together. The first time I saw, sitting on a modern gas stove, one of the native clay cooking dishes used for centuries by the Syrians, I felt I was seeing tangible evidence of the blending process. 
There was always plenty of work to be done at Denison House, for there were classes and game periods of all kinds for boys and girls. Besides these, English writing and reading were taught to those ambitious mothers and fathers who knew only their native tongue and came to learn a new one. This instruction, by the way, is very different from ordinary classes where pupils know the language. Did you ever stop to think how explanations could be made if you did not know any of the words the teacher was using? Of course, she would have to pantomime what she was saying. In the beginning, that is exactly what is done in these classes. For instance, to teach door, the instructor has to go to a door and point it out. To interpret, I open the door, she must go through the whole motion with the class repeating the words. And so on through the sign language until pupils learn enough to take up the alphabet. In the comments on an article about Denison House posted by the Social Welfare History Project of Virginia Commonwealth University, Jane Zanino Pepe shared the following My mother, Isabel Tawa, was the daughter of Syrian immigrants. She spent most of her free time at Denison House as a child. She always spoke fondly of her teacher, Amelia Earhart. My mother so enjoyed spending time with Amelia, who brought such excitement to the children she mentored. Amelia would bring out the innate creativity in which their eager young minds just flourished. She taught many things and left a lasting impression on the little Syrian girl growing up in the south end of Boston. Like most of us, Amelia kept up with her hobby. Some people podcast, some people fly. In her own words, In the midst of all these activities at Denison House, not much time was left for flying. However, I did join a chapter of the National Aeronautic Association there and was ultimately made vice president. And I did tuck into the busy Denison House days everything I possibly could that had something to do with my favorite hobby. I knew some of the local flyers. I went up whenever I had the opportunity. I was busy, too, with Miss Ruth Nichols of Rye and trying to work out some means of organizing the women in the fold. The National Playground Association asked me to be on the Boston Committee to judge in a model airplane tournament they were sponsoring at the time. And since this combined my two greatest interests, aviation and social work, in an unusual way, I was very glad to serve. None of this was what you could call important, except to me. It was sheer fun. And it did keep me... None of this was what you could call important, except to me. It was sheer fun. And it did keep me in touch with flying. It usually works out that if one follows where an interest leads, the knowledge or contacts somehow or other will be found useful sometime. To the person who has learned to swim well comes the opportunity to rescue a drowning man. If I hadn't cared enough to become a member of the aviation group in Boston, there wouldn't have been a friendship crossing for me. After Charles Lindbergh's solo flight across the Atlantic in 1927, a woman named Amy Guest was intrigued by the possibility of becoming the first woman to fly or be flown across the Atlantic Ocean. After deciding that the trip was too perilous for her to undertake, she offered to sponsor the project for another woman. After hearing of the plan, publisher and publicist George Putnam and Captain Hilton Rayleigh were determined to produce the spectacle. Rayleigh describes how Amelia Earhart became involved in a 1938 piece for the San Francisco Chronicle. 
I learned that Mrs. Frederick E. Guest of London and New York, whose husband had been Secretary of State for Air in Lloyd George's cabinet, was the mysterious sponsor who had planned to be the first of her sex to fly the Atlantic. Her family, said Mr. Lehman, was much concerned. Soon, it was agreed that if I could find the right sort of girl to take her place, Mrs. Guest would yield. On the merest hunch, when I returned to Boston, I telephoned my friend Rear Admiral Reginald K. Belknap, retired. Why, yes, said he. I know a young social worker who flies. I'm not sure how many hours she's had, but I do know that she's deeply interested in aviation and a thoroughly fine person. Call Denison House and ask for Amelia Earhart. By this time, Amelia had a high profile in Boston due to her work at Denison Airport, described in her biography by Doris Rich. When her old friend and mentor Bert Kinner was looking for a sales outlet for his planes, one of the people he met in California was Harold T. Denison of Quincy, Massachusetts, who was developing a commercial airport on land near the present-day Naval Reserve Air Base at Squantum. At Kinner's suggestion, Denison asked Amelia to become both Kinner's sales representative at Denison Airport and one of its stockholders. She accepted both offers and somehow scraped up the money for a few shares of stock. In a newspaper report on the airport's official opening, July 2, 1927, Amelia is described as a director of Denison Corporation, the only woman on the flying staff, as well as a social worker at Denison House. The quiet, reserved woman Bert Kinner had picked to demonstrate his plane became an articulate, persuasive salesperson at the airport. Kinner flew there from Los Angeles the first week in September in a new plane he had just built, one with five cylinders. He left the plane at Denison with Amelia as his demonstrator sales representative. During her time at the airport, Amelia could be seen zipping around over Boston and dropping flyers and pamphlets promoting Denison House programs and events. From her personality, to her flight experience, to her all-American good looks, Rayleigh knew immediately upon meeting her that this was the woman for the job. However, he pointedly did not pressure her and made her aware of the risks. Rayleigh continues, Some weeks after Mrs. Guest had retired in Amelia's favor, Julie, my wife, in daily touch with our secret preparations, broached the subject and woman to woman urged her to back out if she felt the slightest degree uneasy. Her reply was characteristic. No, this is the way I look at it. My family's insured. There's only myself to think about. And when a great adventure is offered you, you don't refuse it, that's all. As a rule, when gatecrashers are caught in the act, they are thrown out, as well as they deserve to be. George and I enjoyed the unique experience of being asked instead to manage the performance and cast a new leading lady. Indeed, at Mrs. Guest's request, GP agreed to act as the producer, to step into the spotlight when the curtain rose as the backer of the flight. It was at Amelia's request primarily that I agreed to see her through the rumpus in Europe. Earhart accompanied pilot Wilmer Stoltz and co-pilot mechanic Lewis Gordon on the flight, mostly as a passenger, but with the added duty of keeping the flight log. They flew in a Fokker F-7B-3M seaplane, with attached pontoons known as Friendship. The first leg of the journey took them from East Boston to Newfoundland. Boston Globe magazine describes that ominous beginning. 
It took five tries for the plane to get off the water, too heavy at five tons. To make it, the crew had to shed not only gas and gear, but backup pilot Lou Gower. Without his 150 pounds on board, the friendship finally hit 50 miles an hour, enough speed to get airborne, and rose above the harbor with the sun. Almost immediately, the cabin door failed, bursting open. Gordon and Earhart, caught off guard, nearly fell out of the door and into the sea. They finally managed to secure the busted door with string. Not ideal, but there was nothing they could do to overcome the problems they faced once they made their scheduled stop the next day in Trepassy, Newfoundland, a colorless outpost on a gray ocean. They landed there to refuel and spend one night, but ended up staying two weeks, grounded by the weight of the heavy friendship and socked in by the weather. The team departed from Trepassy Harbor, Newfoundland on June 17, 1928, and landed near Burryport, South Wales, about a half mile off the coast, exactly 20 hours and 40 minutes later. Stoltz told a reporter from the Lanelli Mercury, We encountered fog almost all the way, and there was considerable rain as well. Most of the way I was flying blind because of the fog and rain. We had no idea where we were as we had not seen Ireland. We landed here in South Wales because we were short of fuel. When interviewed after landing, Earhart said, Schultz did all the flying. Had to. I was just baggage, like a sack of potatoes. She added, Maybe someday I'll try it alone. The New York Times described her reception. The arrival of the friendship was the greatest event this remote district had had since the end of World War II when the town's boys came home. Miss Earhart was nearly crushed by the anxiety of the crowd of men, women, and children to touch the hem of her flying suit, get her autograph on a slip of paper, wring her hand, and congratulate her upon her triumphant passage over the Atlantic. The high sheriff of Carmarthenshire, who had rode out to greet her, the town's three policemen, and a couple of friends had to form a ring with locked arms about the latest popular heroine and fight their way a hundred yards from the shore to the office of the local zinc works, where they found shelter behind locked doors. You must remember, the local police chief said apologetically, that our people never saw anything to compare with this. I advise you to remain here until we get extra police. The Friendship's crew were marooned within the walls of the Frickers Metal Company an hour and a half before police reinforcements arrived and cleared away for the two motor cars to take them to a distant hotel, where rest, food, and sleep could be obtained after their arduous journey. It's worth noting that for this historic feat, which could not have happened without her, the pilot earned $20,000, the mechanic was paid $5,000, and Earhart was offered nothing. You might say that she was paid an exposure, but that's a debatable currency at best. She received a welcome in Boston worthy of any Super Bowl or World Series victory. 250,000 people turned out to greet her, and 2,000 social workers attended a reception at the Copley Plaza. From that point forward, Amelia Earhart embraced her future in aviation, and we think you know how that story goes. And what became of Denison House? Boston City Archives tells us, In 1941, the Settlement House released a statement citing neighborhood depopulation as a reason for closing the house. But with better times during the past two years, more people moved, more homes were torn down, 
and we began to have fewer numbers. The 1940 census showed that 1,800 people had moved away from this neighborhood. In the last 10 years, a recent study also showed that more than two-fifths of our members live outside this area, where they could now use other agencies, that one-half of our neighborhood members do use other neighborhood organizations for similar services. South End residents who used the Settlement House's services were directed to other local social welfare agencies, including the South End House, the Chinese Mission, and the Salvation Army. So many of our neighbors, as well as friends, are interested to know what the future of Denison House is to be and where. The area recommended by the project committee is in parts of Roxbury and Dorchester, where we hope to learn from the people how we can be of greatest service, and if they wish, to develop with them the best program possible. In the history of our country, there has never been a time when the need for local neighborhood solidarity has been so evident. We want Denison House to carry on its fine old traditions, alive to new ideas and modern trends, to give our neighbors a service that belongs truly to them and to their time. Experience has shown that, as a neighborhood develops its own resources for leadership and local improvement, the individual becomes a better and more valuable citizen. We shall be pleased to have friends and neighbors visit us at a future date, and for any who find themselves moving in our direction to join us. In 1942, Denison House relocated to Dorchester, where it occupied several buildings before moving into the former Howard Avenue School in 1949. In 1965, it merged with Little House, Dorchester House, and the Columbia Point Youth Center to form the Federated Dorchester Neighborhood Houses, which became college-bound Dorchester in 2010. The original site on Tyler Street, now occupied by apartment buildings, is a stop on the Chinatown South Cove Walk of the Boston Women's Heritage Trail. To learn more about these amazing women, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 110. We'll compile the original show notes for each episode with the addition of information on this week's featured book and upcoming event. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might play it on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next time to talk about that time that Boston invented the playground. <laughs>